Hello and welcome to another episode of the Generosity Freak Show. I'm your host, Brady Josephson. Today we're talking social fundraising with Rich Dietz and Jenna Jameson from One Cause. We will be diving into two different research studies that they've done where they surveyed donors who gave through social fundraising campaigns and fundraisers themselves who ran social fundraising campaigns. Kind of going over what was behind that research, what went into that research, what were the key findings, and then what are some tips both to engage social fundraisers and social donors. We also touch on Facebook fundraising raisers in there as well. So interesting conversation about some interesting research, and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks as always for listening. Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's just another Freak Show, here we go. I said, welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's just another Freak Show, here we go. Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's just another Freak Show, here we go. Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's just another Freak Show, here we go. Rich, Jenna, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. So we're going to dive into social fundraising and some neat research you've done looking at social fundraisers and social donors. But I want to actually start with a question that we normally end with, and you can both answer it briefly. Um, At a high level, how do you think we can grow, optimize, and improve generosity? I love this question. Um, I'll tell you from, from my perspective, when I kind of look at everything, and this kind of gets into social fundraising right away, is there's this untapped opportunity in peer influence and really having philanthropy and nonprofits leverage peer influence. Um, and when I say that, I don't mean just getting people to fundraise on your behalf, but getting people to share your message, to share your message, to share your events, to share your campaigns, to fundraise for you. I mean, everything that we saw in both of these research studies we're about to get into just shows um, the power of, of social sharing. And that's just kind of the world we live in right now. And so why wouldn't that be a component of the way that we're doing our fundraising? And it's not just about, hey, I need to start doing a peer-to-peer fundraising campaign. I need to throw throw together a run event, right? It's about just how do I layer in this idea of peer influence and peer sharing into everything I'm doing? Um, You know, whether that's, you know, using ambassadors to help drive your next big gala event, and getting ticket mm-hmm. sales and sponsors and, and maybe in some donations along the way, or maybe mm-hmm. it's setting up virtual campaigns and making it really easy for your supporters to do that on your behalf. I think we just know from how we live our life today that that's the number one way we're hearing about things. And that's the number one way people are hearing about giving opportunities. And it's, it's really untapped. And I think, Rich, you know, you and I were talking about, you know, with peer influence comes a lot of opportunity for testing and that a lot of nonprofits don't take advantage of that. Yeah, 100%. For me, I think it's all about testing and trying new things. And that's where I think a study like this dovetails perfectly in into the work you guys do, uh, Brady. So, you know, you take a, a survey like this and, you know, survey data, you got to always take it with a grain of salt because people say one thing and they'll do something totally different. So mm-hmm. Jen and I love to take these surveys and then we dissect it and we say, okay, so here's some ideas that nonprofits can go out there and try. It's now up to them to go test it out and see if it works, or it's up to you guys to to take one of these and do an A-B split test, you know, with, with, with some of your folks and find out how people actually act when they're not, you know, on the phone talking to us um, in, in, in a survey and then testing new things. And, you know, I talk to my clients all the time. If you find someone that doesn't work, that's awesome. You now know what doesn't work. Let's go try something else. And eventually we're going to hit right. on those things that work. And, and, and a study like this gives you a bunch of ideas to go out there and try. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I think you're I think you're right in terms of peer influence being under 
leveraged in our in our space. Too often we think of social or whatever as like a channel yeah. or a strategy and a tactic. And if you just step back and think, how do we live our lives? How do we hear about things? How do we make purchasing decisions? And then how do we just leverage multiple channels, right, of social influence for that is is definitely something yeah. under tech. And we've seen experiments even just like, you know, a pre-selected donation amount with like most popular. And, you know, we see more and more organizations <laughs> that are testing, finding like the person before you gave or this is the most popular amount. Like even those subtle nudges, they work, especially as people are on mobile. So that's that is undertapped. And what's so great about this conversation is I think the world we're going to talk about, you know, social fundraising, social fundraising donors is really kind of like under experimented. Now that's more your world than mine, but you know, I was in it for a bit and I don't I don't know of a lot of organizations doing more rigorous research into not just like user behavior but also like the testing side of things. So I think it's really great that you know, you guys have that approach and are going down that path. So that's what we're going to talk about. Let's dive into it. So uh, you really did two main research projects or two components of maybe one big research project, looking at social fundraisers and social donors. Let's start with the social fundraisers. Can you talk about, you know, why you wanted to do this research study in the first place and then maybe how you went about it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll, I'll tell you what was really interesting for us. And, and when we sit down and think about why we want to do research, we really look for gaps in knowledge, right? So we're not trying to kind of recreate maybe a report that's out there. We're trying to figure out where do we need more information to, be, to improve fundraising and improve efficiency overall. And so what we saw is there are a lot of studies out there that are more reporting out on like statistics about peer-to-peer fundraising, meaning yeah. how, how is peer-to-peer fundraising raising more every year? How many participants, you know, very much like campaign stats, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the top 30 reports and all that stuff out there that's just saying how those raises are going year after year, but there's nothing really diving into that individual participant and understanding what do they need to succeed on an individual level. And so what we wanted to do with this research study is actually survey uh, peer-to-peer fundraising participants, you know, someone that fundraised on behalf of a nonprofit in the last 12 months. And we didn't want to limit it to traditional peer-to-peer, you know, run, walk, rides. We wanted to really expand that universe to include all types of social fundraising. So we also included people that maybe set it up um, a birthday campaign or a memorial tribute or a virtual campaign, or maybe they threw an event that raised money on behalf of a, a nonprofit and really get into all those different types of ways that participants are raising money for, for missions they care about and really cool. ask them, what do you need to succeed? What motivates you? Um, how are you recruited? Where were some challenges for you? And, and really dive into breaking down that whole experience that they have with an organization and look for, for opportunities to improve, you know, all the way from, you know, initial recruitment through how are they being followed up with? How are they being asked to fundraise again if they are being asked? Great. Awesome. So uh, we'll obviously send out links to the, the full study that people can read. And there's a lot of really good stuff in there. But can you highlight maybe a couple key findings overall and maybe some things that that were kind of like were surprising or stood out to you? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll dive in and Rich, you know, feel free to jump in because yep. I know you love getting into this data. But, um, you know, for me, uh, the idea of, of peer influence and getting to that right away starts at the very first touch point that a participant has with these bar campaigns. Like the number one way that participants are being recruited is actually by another participant. So they're hearing about like, hey, come join me in this virtual campaign where we're not going to shave for a month. Or, hey, come join my team that's, that's running this or, you know, be a part of um, this event that I'm throwing. Like that, that they're actually two times as likely to be recruited by a friend, family member, or colleague than the nonprofit themselves. Yeah. 
the reverse side of that, Rich, I think that we see is that not many organizations are actually um, using that motivator. They're not rewarding people for recruiting. They're not structuring their campaigns to actually ask people to recruit others. They're not building in the team opportunities into like non-traditional um, you know, peer-to-peer social fundraising stuff. And, and Rich, I think you've seen people that do that actually have a ton of success. Yeah, I, I think especially on the recruitment side. So, you know, if you look at the peer-to-peer fundraising over the last, you know, five, 10 years, right, most of the big events, especially it's flat growth or actually declining growth in peer-to-peer events. Um, and we think a lot of that is because there's been so much attention focused just on fundraising. Um, if you look at the mm-hmm. leaderboards, it's all about fundraising, fundraising, fundraising. So if I'm a millennial, if I'm even a Gen Z now who are getting very involved in peer-to-peer, um, I'm probably not going to be able to raise thousands of dollars from my from my friends and family. But if I can be rewarded for doing things like recruiting, if I I can be rewarded for doing for things like sharing on social media, right? Those are kind of secondary activities, but in the long run, that's going to raise more money, right? That's going to bring in more, more people to your event. It's going to talk about your event more on social media. That's going to lead to the bottom, you know, to raising more money, bottom line, all of that, but it's going to take a little bit of time, but that's where we're going to get back to growth. Um, if we get away from that dollar um, and start going on that peer recruitment, I think in the, in the study, Jenna mentioned, I think, uh, you know, two, two times more likely to be recruited by a friend or family member than by the nonprofit themselves. All right. Two times more likely. So asking your your peer fundraisers to also recruit and then giving them rewards for them is a huge step. Yeah, I I think that's really interesting. Um, And it's not, you know, unique to peer to peer. I think sector wide, our focus on like top line revenue or bottom line revenue has been a problem instead of trying to figure out, you know, underlying metrics. Even yesterday, I was on a call with someone who's got this tech platform, which is really cool engagement. And they're trying to go straight from this engaging thing to a pop up that says, please make a donation. And my suggestion was like, what if you just went to like follow us on Facebook or ideally sign up to get emails and then nurture through email. We have this desire to just like monetize revenue, revenue. And it actually hurts us in the long term instead of taking more of these approaches. How do you engage? How do you share? How do you recruit? And you know it will lead to more revenue, but it's you know less direct. So I think that's not unique to -to peer-to-peer, but it's interesting to see the same patterns right across different styles. Let's talk about teams for a second, because I thought that was really interesting. Like being on a team or a part of a team was extra motivating. And there's probably a few different factors that go into why people want to be on teams. You know, no one wants to be alone. There's, you know, some accountability. But what did you find about people interested in being on teams? I, I think what we saw in layering on top of just maybe more traditional teams is, is also just looking at your social network. And so we actually, like one of the top motivators of social fundraisers that they're really motivated by seeing what were their friends giving, what were their mm. friends raising. And it doesn't mean it had to be maybe on a traditional team, but just the fact that a part of a larger network and I have this ability into my network and what they're doing. Um, but traditional teams just in general, let's say if I'm able to set up a fundraising team, I mean, I asked Brady and Rich to join me. Um, the, like the, those that were a part of teams, those that had team captains were much more likely to raise more, but also were much more likely to fundraise again. And I think mm. that's been our pure influence component of it, that you're, yeah. you're that's a part of a social group um, that you kind of belong to a larger, you know, a larger mission as well. And you have a shared mission together. Um, and there's a lot of support that happens throughout that um, that we find really interesting. But um, I think that the, the interesting part to me was that outside just traditional teams, which is all that pure influence or visibility into how your social network gives um, was really cool. Hmm. 
Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Um, and a lot of the, like I did Movember this year for the first time and they're big on the teams and I didn't have a team and it's like, oh yeah, this is really like lonely. I wish there was more, you know, peers and friends or colleagues or something like that. Or at our conference, we had sick kids up here in Canada. They did this massive peer campaign. And I mean, they did a lot of interesting stuff, but it was all about join your team, find your crew, you know, this whole idea. And so, again, it's interesting to see, like, I don't know if it's chicken egg. They knew the research and then they did it or they did it and then there's research to back it up. But that that definitely stood out in looking at the the research. So that's kind of like, how does someone get on board and what do they do? What about after the fact? Because I know that's always a, a problem area, whether it's a social donor or a social fundraiser. What did you learn about kind of what happens after the fact in terms of follow-up or anything like that yeah that one i'm I, that one i'm very passionate about jenna knows and i kind of go crazy over this one but this one comes back to <laughs> talking about impact um and we've been talking about this in the nonprofit space for so long and i'll go to conferences and talk about you know donors want to see impact peer peer fundraisers they want to see the impact of that and everyone nods their head yeah 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 and we're finding that people are just not doing it so in mm. in the study we, you know we asked we asked fundraisers, how do you want to be thanked by, by the organization? 49% said they wanted to be thanked via by, by showing impact. What, what was the impact of the money that I raised? What did you do with it? Did it mm-hmm. make a difference? And then they also told us in the same breath, only 18% of nonprofits were showing them the impact. So Crazy. while we all nod our head, yeah, yeah, we know to do that, we're not doing it. And so we need to do that. People want to know, I gave you money. What did you do with it? Did it make a difference? If it didn't make a difference, they're going to go find somewhere else to, 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 do, to do that work. And so why do you think that breakdown exists? Well, you know, I, it, it, it's a couple of things. I think one, it's one of those things where everyone goes, yeah, yeah, I, I, I know that. I, I know I should be doing that. And then they just kind of stop there. They don't actually dig into mm-hmm. actually doing the work. And then secondly, I think people don't know how to show impact. And Jenna knows my favorite way to tell nonprofits to show impact is tell stories. Just tell stories about the difference that this money made in someone's life. You tell those success stories, that shows impact. That gets people excited. They're going to remember that impact, and they're going to be more likely to want to come back and fundraise for you again. Yeah, and I think there's an element in there too, where or maybe it's around like not being able or not knowing how to communicate impact. They think it's maybe more complicated, or it needs to be more perfect. Yep. Right. So we we just shot a Google Analytics course and a phrase that the instructor kept using is like good enough to to get going. And I think that's really key is like in our desire to have this perfect impact report (laughs) and this beautiful story or whatever, then we do nothing. Right. And so when we do our user experience and sign up for emails and there's huge gaps and I think it's people go like, well, I don't know. And this wasn't perfect. And well, it's better than silence. Right. It's better than, you know, only 19 percent or 18 percent getting something. hundred percent. And it doesn't need to be that complicated. Yeah, I, I, and I think that's the thing. Right. We got to hit home. Definitely. For and, and you talk about the statistics. And I think a lot of times people want to focus on those statistics or those big stats. And they've done studies on this. And I'm sure you know the same studies where they take people in a room, they tell them 10 facts and they tell them one story. They call them up three months later. On average, people can remember four of the facts. But every single person remembers the story that, that, that they were told because that's how our brains work. You know what I mean? So tell tell those stories and just start doing it. Like you said, don't don't wait for the perfect communication. Yeah, it's, it's also interesting because storytelling is such a, you know, buzzword of the last 10 years as well. Mm-hmm. And I think it's obviously really, really critical. And what's interesting on the fundraising side is we've got quite a bit of evidence that when it comes time to actually make an ask story and story format isn't actually that useful where it's most powerful is leading up to a donation and after After. a donation to that to leave a lasting impact so people understand when it comes time to actually ask you don't want this long flowing you know she's a 12 year old girl and this it seems like it will work and people are motivated by stories and definitely have to use emotion 
But we kind of misuse storytelling in the follow-up, to your point, would be such a great and perfect place to do it. So cool. All right. So that's kind of what happens afterwards. We're talking about survey data, right? This is what people say. And yeah. But are there some any differences or discrepancies that you've seen in terms of what people said in a survey and then maybe what you see in the real world or what your data says? Yeah, I think if you're a reader of nonprofit research, you've probably seen our stagnant retention rates when it comes to participants year after year, right? Um, you know, closer to 30 to 40 percent is what a lot of the different studies out there show. Um, I think Rich mentioned that, you know, as a whole, we look at the really large peer-to-peer fundraising campaigns that have been around for events for, you know, 20, 30 years. They're slowly starting to, you know, decrease or they're they're calling flat as new black. They're basically happy if they're stagnant, right? If they're not being year over year. Um, right. You know, what our, what our survey showed is that 68% of those that um, did participate in a peer-to-peer campaign, so they were likely to fundraise again for that organization. But we know it's not happening. That's a huge gap. Right. I mean, like almost 70% of those that we talked to said that they would be likely to do it again, but only 30 to 40% are actually doing it. Hmm. How are we losing those people? Is it, right. you know, is it that we're not engaging them? Are we not asking them again? Are we making it difficult for them to sign up again? Are we forgetting that, you know, this, what they just were able to raise for you? Were we not showing the impact? I think there's so many things to dig into that between, yeah. you know, the study shows opportunity. It shows likelihood. It shows, yeah, I'd be willing to do that again. But we know that something's happening in between right. camps and how we treat people. Like, do we never touch that person again? Yeah. And then Yeah, no that again it's not unique to to peer to peer or social, right? Like again we see common patterns and you know last year we did a research study where we signed up for email, made a donation and looked at what did we receive in the first 45 days in particular email communication. And for a lot of organizations we didn't actually receive a lot even though we know there's a lot of evidence and research that suggests that the best time to communicate and engage is immediately after an action. So I wonder if that's also a part of social where it's counterintuitive, but the time to get someone to raise their hand and express interest about fundraising again in the future is actually almost almost immediately after they just got done, right? So thank you so much. Here's how your money's being used. We're planning to do the same thing. Are you interested? And you get that commitment now as opposed to like, let's leave them alone. Let's wait six months. And then you go back to ask. And by this time, you know, they've changed email addresses and they forgot who you are and deliverability, blah, blah. you know, like the longer time goes between when they felt that, you know, rush and got the impact and when we ask for another commitment, then the likelihood of them actually taking it, you know, goes down and down. So I wonder if that's a similar kind of opportunity in the in the peer-to-peer space as it is in the donor space. 100%, 100%. When someone donates or when someone finishes a peer-to-peer campaign where they raise money for you, that is the happiest they're ever going to be with the organization, right. right? I mean, they've just done this thing. They're like all excited. And then most yeah. nonprofits ignore them for three or four months and then hit them up for right. an ask again. Like, Right, I mean, right, if, right. If you tried to date someone and took that sort of approach, you you would you wouldn't get very far, right? <laughs> that's right. that's not the way to do it. When they when they finish the campaign, when you want to hit them right away, that's the power of the welcome series, right? If you look at any of the data on welcome series, welcome series emails, I think it was Experian did this did a study on this, four times more opens and five times more clicks than 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 a regular email that a nonprofit sends out. They want the content then. They want to they want to see that impact. Um, and so following up with them right away, you're 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 dead on and we should be doing it more with with our peer fundraisers. So that's maybe one, you know, opportunity or idea, but there's you know, there's a lot of insights in the in the report, particularly around social fundraisers. What are some other, you know, tips for someone listening if they're trying to, you know, do better in their social fundraising? I, I think one of the things that kind of came to the front was 
engagement. And I think we talk a lot about donor engagement. We don't talk a lot about participant engagement and this idea that how can you build in engagement opportunities outside of just fundraising during Mm -hmm. a, a social fundraising campaign. So whether that's, like we said, recruiting, sharing something on social, um, attending a wraparound event or hosting your own event or participating in a matching gift campaign, whatever it is, the more likely that someone is is touching your campaign multiple times through a week or even daily, the more likely they are to fundraise again for you and also mm. be successful. And so we've kind of been looking at this idea of should engagement really be a major KPI of social fundraising? You know, are you creating a strategy that's really thinking about, am I building my leaderboards around engagement? Am I building the different activities? Am I breaking up? Am I creating opportunities for them to engage with our organization, engage with the campaign outside of just soliciting donations? Because mm-hmm. we know how valuable they are to us. Are we making that experience really enjoyable and really fun? They're going to want to do it year after year. If the yeah. only thing we're hitting them up is to remind them, hey, you need to get, get to your $500 goal, that's not really a fun experience. And so what are other mm-hmm. things later on um, to make it something that people do want to come back and do year after year. Yeah. And, and, right. and to touch on that, it's it, like, like we were talking about earlier, I can't remember if it was before we hit record or not, but like having a graduated offering of engagement. So it's not just about donate, 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 give me money, give me money, give me money, but mm-hmm. giving them some small activities to do as well. Give them a reason to come back to the website, you know, like you on Facebook, uh, you know, t- tell a friend, share this on social media, give them some of those small actions. The more of those small actions we can get them to take, that develops a more in-depth relationship, going to be more likely that they'll take those those bigger asks when when when, when we ask them to. Yeah. And what about, I know one of the challenges is often like, oh, I don't know how to ask or I don't ask or, you know, was that covered in the survey or any tips to help people actually, you know, you got to ask to raise money. You can't just create a page. So, you know, any tips there? Yeah. Actually, so the two top challenges that we saw for, for peer-to-peer fundraisers was that they were uncomfortable asking for a donation and that they didn't feel like they could motivate people to give. Um, so mm. a couple of things that we found, um, inside the data is actually um, layering on opportunities that make it easier to ask. So things like a matching gift. If as an organization, I've gone out and created a matching gift, maybe it's with a sponsor, maybe it's with a major donor that says, you know, all the donations raised today will, you know, will match hundred percent or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, that actually eases it for your participants. It, may, it gives them a reason to reach out to someone. Yeah, totally. The donor, I'm more likely to give on that day because I feel like I'm going to have a larger impact. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely a really motivating factor for folks. Um, and, you know, social fundraising doesn't have to be all just on your your participants. I think some, you know, nonprofits need to have a little skin in the game. So if you can get a matching gift to really make sure that you can help folks be successful and make them feel more comfortable asking, I think we've seen a lot of success with matching gifts. Um, and then I would say the last thing there is just like how we do leverage technology to make it easier for people. Mm-hmm. So are you making it easy for people to um, reach out how they normally reach out and share via social, via text messaging? Um, are you creating it as simple as just like, you know, share to Facebook, share to Twitter, share via text, say going into my phone and being able to text someone directly because that's how I'm talking to them, right? I'm not, maybe yeah. I, I never email my colleagues um, via my personal email, but I'd be really comfortable texting them and asking them to join. So yeah. you make it easy to text somebody. Yeah. 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 That was actually one of the things that, that stood out. Part of the reason why I wanted to do Movember is we had, they actually won an award at our conference and it was obviously a big thing in Canada. And I was like, well, I wonder what that user experience was like, you know, what do they do? And that was one of the things I thought they did really, really well was 
helping me feel confident making ask and giving me resources and here's a templated email and it's already kind of pre-filled with some information and again with the tools we have to like automate and merge some personal information you know it wasn't like earth shattering but it really you know at the very least it was a good reminder and you know they were really making it easier for me and and you know adding in a matching gift or some other incentive would be great yeah and that is so important like if you think if you think most folks listening to this podcast right now um, are probably professional fundraisers and we know how hard it is to ask people for money right imagine if you've never done it before and you're, <laughs> right. you're going to go ask your friends and family for money all of a sudden yeah. you feel like you're you know a, a representative of amway right hey i got this new uh, opportunity <laughs> i want to tell you about right it feels yeah. kind of sleazy and weird so giving them sample emails I was giving them sample social media posts, sample text, all that stuff, and then taking it to that next level and and coaching them and saying, hey, you know, did you know that most people don't donate the first time you ask them? So have you tried to reach out to some of those people a second time and giving them yeah. that that content for that second email, maybe that that third email, um, and just thinking what it's like. And that's where that welcome series comes in. So not even not yeah. only having a welcome series for donors, but having a welcome series for new fundraisers and teach them yeah. how to become fundraisers over the course of you know 10, 12 emails over the course of three months they're, they're going to raise more money. Yeah, totally. Shots fired at Amway. I like that. (laughs) Um, you know, but one of the the things that we've seen across our research and it sounds kind of like wishy-washy, but the underlying secret to fundraising success is empathy of just being able to put yourselves in the shoes of a donor or truly understand what it's like to be a donor. Your messaging changes, your communication, like everything changes if you can do that. And the same thing in social fundraising, like just think about what you're asking them to do. You're asking them to like, leverage their personal friendships and networks on your behalf and ask for money, which is something that, you know, freaks people out. So we have to equip them and, you know, make that as easy as possible. Right. So it's the sense of empathy, which I think is really interesting, which is why your, your survey results are so great is it helps people foster a sense of empathy, even if they can't collect that information on their own. So, well, that's great. I'm sure we could do more and more on social fundraising, but that's, that's plenty. I want to touch on the, the donor side or the social donor side. Can you just touch on like, who is a social donor and how is that methodology different if, if at all in the research? Yeah. So, um, as far as like how we wanted to run a donor study and, and there's quite a lot of donor studies out there every year, but you know, one of the things that we wanted to look at was kind of this new segment of donors that we've seen emerging, which we're calling social donors. So these are people that are, have more of a social connection to an organization. So that means maybe they're not your, they're not your bequeath donor, they're or sorry, bequest donor, they're not going to be your annual campaign donor. They're not a monthly subscriber donor. You know, these are folks that are maybe showing up at your fundraising gala because someone invited them to a table. They may be giving to a birthday campaign or um, they may be sponsoring someone in your run, walk, ride, and they may not necessarily be super familiar with your mission or connect to your mission, but they still are a donor that's coming through. And how mm-hmm. do we engage these types of donors? Um, how do we, um, if anything, impact retention of these donors because they just have a different connection to you. I think Rich and I talk about like these are first-time donors for the majority of the time. Um, they don't necessarily get to you for because they have an affinity to the mission. They get to you because your friend asks them to, or they're called they cross them to a table. I yeah, right. Um, and so it's just kind of a really interesting group, and we wanted to dig into them. And so we surveyed. Um, a little under 1,100 of these social donors who had either attended a fundraising event or gala, had given to someone's birthday or memorial tribute campaign, or sponsored a friend in a one-walk ride. So kind of really select, focusing on the ways they give. Um, And I think that's one thing that we've kind of encouraged our nonprofits to look at is to not look at your donors by the amount they're giving, but the way that they're giving. How are they Mm -hmm. coming? your organization because that should really more influence the way that you're going to engage with them and talk to them than the actual mm. volume amount. 
I'm going to tell you a lot more about that person and maybe their their mission or how they've connected with you in the past. Yeah, interesting. And again, the parallels to, you know, regular, I'm using air quotes, which you can't see on the podcast, but regular, you know, online fundraising is the same. A lot of our like RFM models, like there's some value there, but really it doesn't tell you much about the donor. Yeah. If someone gave, you know, 20 bucks six months ago, I don't know anything more really about them, you know, and so to build all these models based off uh, a fairly flawed data point. And so why should we do that over here? That makes a lot of sense. Well, same question. What were some of the kind of key findings or things that maybe surprised you on the social donor side? we really wanted to dig into motivators and, and why do these donors gift? Um, and then the number one thing that impacted their gift was that it had to be easy. Um, mm. so when we kind of narrow it down to the top three things, it was ease, mission, and impact. And the mm. number one thing is an easy giving experience. And this is no matter if they were in-person giving a gift or online giving a gift, they very much are looking at, and if we, if we think about it, they're more socially connected. They're not as connected to the mission, and they're probably first-time donors. Ease is going to play a really big factor. Um, and so there's yeah. a, a lot of things you can get into ease, but that, that was a huge one. Um, and I think the other one, and, and this goes back to our kind of peer influence theme that's kind of been throughout all of it, is that the number one way they're hearing about a giving opportunity is from a friend, family member, or colleague. So that goes right. maybe, you know, that traditional gala event, um, all the way to a birthday campaign, a run-walk ride, whatever it could be that's maybe your more traditional peer-to-peer was like, well, duh, they're hearing about it from their friend. But um, I think it also goes for fundraising events. And, and we've seen that kind of shift how we're recommending our clients think about their promotion of their fundraising events because we're knowing mm-hmm. that peer influence is having such a factor on it. Are you building that into your strategy, your promotion strategy for your event, your success strategy for your event? How are we going to leverage um, that that natural concept of, of sharing. Yeah, and, and I'll just add that, again, shockingly, it comes back to impact. Um, if you want to convert these into second-time donors, third-time donors, monthly donors, all that stuff, they want to know impact. In fact, they said in the survey they cared more about being shown impact than about recognition. Okay, they don't, they don't want a plaque. They don't want their name up on the website. They want to know, I gave you money. Did it make a difference? Tell me how it made a difference. I'm going to feel better. I'm going to, I'm going to keep talking to you and you can maybe get me to donate that second time. That's the key. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that's, that's also the classic kind of like they, they, everyone says that no one says I want my name in lights, you know, (laughs) and so many people say, I don't even need a thank you letter. It's like, no, you really do want to be thanked for this, you know, but the, the doesn't uh, undermine the point of impact being so critical. I think the, the interesting thing thinking about ease of giving, and maybe we can get into some tips, but you know, there's a lot of things that we've seen in our in our research that I don't necessarily see as much being applied to the giving experience uh, for like social pages. And I'm I'm curious to know like what the disconnect is. For example, like the the nudge donation, like for a social oriented campaign, it seems like that type of tactic of like the person before you gave or most people give or you know here's the most common amount to Brady's page or you know that type of you know social intelligence. We've seen that work really well on especially mobile givers, you know, like, can we learn things from the main giving experience and bring them over? Or is it, you know, so different that we have to relearn things? Or how can we improve that that giving experience to make it easier, do you think, particularly for these social donors? Yeah, I, I think I love that example because I think about it at in-person events as well as, on, as digital giving. So, like, if you think about an in-person event, um, if you've been to, like, a, a fundraising event, you've probably seen, like, a live appeal or a fundraising 
fund a need. And it's just like, you know, they hit the donation button, you see everybody raise their hand or raise their paddle. And you kind of right. get influenced by like, oh man, everyone at my table is giving us this amount. Maybe I should be giving it this amount, right? Like that whole, you know, nudge to do it. Um, but yeah, so I think that peer influence is really interesting. And how do we layer that into our giving experiences? But I think there's, there's so many things that maybe seem a little bit elementary when we talk about easy giving experience that a lot of organizations just start thinking about when it comes to every donation opportunity that someone has with them. So uh, let's get, for example, if I go to a, a, an in-person fundraising event and um, I have to either write a check or swipe a credit card three times every time I buy a fixed price item or whatever it could be like that, that to me just is like, or if I have to stand in a checkout line that's 50 people long, I'm probably not right. going to. Yes, right. That's just not something that I'm going to be interested in. I want to get home to my kids and I'm ready to get out of there. So like power mm. mobile technology is a great example. A lot of organizations use mobile technology to be able to, um, you know, you're still at the event, you're still engaging in the, the social connection part of it, but you're able to get directly on your mobile device. Everything's automatic through your card that you checked in with. And we're just really simplifying that experience. And like, that's been something we've seen some breakthroughs in. Um, and then, you know, moving on, like giving rich, you know, I'll let you dive in with things that you've seen there. But um, I, I, I mean, next after you guys do this all the time too, Brady, is like there's so much that we can tinker with when it comes to online giving to make it easier. Um, and it's such a great testing site for like, um, you know, every new campaign that you're doing, being able to, to optimize and continue to, to push that forward. Because I think we're seeing a lot of advances there. Yeah, well, I think that especially, again, this is where research is interesting. You know, the fact that people are um, more interested in ease of giving than kind of the, the motivation to give, again, whether you believe them or not. But I could see it being true because, you know, if if you ask me to give, I, I care less about the organization yeah. and the reasons like that's already the motivation is because you asked. Therefore, I want to get in. I want to make my donation. I want to feel good about it and move on. So actually reducing the friction in, in our language is actually more important on a social fundraising page, whereas on a, a general donation page, people need a lot of reasons like, why should I give you my money today? What difference are you going to make? So people need to spend actually more time on like message and, you know, bullet points of impact and more so than they think. But here we really can kind of just like, how do you streamline this thing to make it dead easy for these people, probably from a mobile device to make their donation. And that's the easier side of the equation to optimize, to be honest, like messaging and positioning and like, man, that's complicated. But optimizing user experience is like pretty easy, well, relatively (laughs) easy in the grand scheme of things, right? So um, what what else, Rich, can can people do if they're interested in kind of, you know, doing better at, at uh, engaging these social donors, either on the giving or maybe after. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. For gift. me, again, it's going to come back to to how we treat these donors. So, like you know, Jenna was saying, a lot of times these social donors are our first time donors. I actually take it a step further, and they're not even your donors yet. They gave you money, but they are not considered a donor. They are just someone who gave money because a friend asked them to. So you need mm-hmm. to segment these folks out and treat them very differently than the rest of your donors. The rest of your donors know something about you. It was some of that messaging that caught their eye, all that stuff. These folks gave, and I, I sometimes jokingly call peer-to-peer fundraising blackmail fundraising, right? Because if I get an <laughs> email from one of my family members and they're doing a fundraiser, I have to donate to that cause. Or I'm going to have to yeah. see them at Thanksgiving and say why I didn't donate to their to their cause, right? So I donated not even thinking twice about it. I am not a donor to that organization, but yet they start hitting me with appeal letters on, on, you know, on, almost immediately. I, I, right. I may not even remember the nonprofit that I donated to. Yeah. So segment right. that out. Teach them. You, you now have to put them in a different welcome series that is showing them who you are, what you do, why you do it. The why is so important. And then talking about the impact. Um, you know, they very clearly said, again, they want to know the impact if they're going to even think about donating to you 
that 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 second time. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's almost like um, you know they, they get into like a, a bucket where it's like you know long long lapsed or like pre donor or something like that. Where yeah, they have some connection and they've given you money, yeah. but you basically need to reacquire them. And we'll often suggest people like you know you need to actually. I know you have this contact in your database, but you should target this person with like a content offer and advertise to yes. them on Facebook and get them to download something. Yep. And it's like what they already gave to my organization. We should be asking <laughs> them. It's like they're so disengaged at this point. Yeah offer a value, communicate something to get them re-engaged and then try to work back to donation. So it's almost like a similar type of strategy, right? Of like, yeah, it's a donor, but it's really not. (laughs) It's a very different type of donor. And I think that's part of the reason. I think it's always going to be a hard gap to traverse, right? If I gave because Jenna asked me and now I'm like a monthly donor to this cause, it can happen and we can definitely do better. Um, You know, that's one of the things that I think, again, the research is interesting to see is what are people looking for after they give and then how can we do better? Yeah, you're definitely not going to get all of those people to donate. You're going to get a small if you can get a small percentage of them to donate a second time. That that is a huge win. Um, you know, you're never going to get 80 percent of those people to uh, to uh, donate to you again because they were donating for, for a friend or family member. But if you can get them reengaged, I, I, you know, I love the ideas you had. Make it a, make it a content upgrade, something like that. That shows that shows a hand raiser. And then if I have a hand raiser, then I know to to follow up with those folks more and, and have a chance to get that second donation. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Just to go back for a minute and I, 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 to go full circle on this, I think it goes back to ease too. Like if I had a terrible experience giving to Rich's fundraising campaign, you're probably not an organization I'm going to give to again. If it was like, that there and all these forms over and over again and um, yeah. all this information on me and I don't really know who they are, but I did it because Rich asked me to, like, I'm still going to think about that just like we do with any purchase decision that we made. Like if we had, if we had to buy something from somebody and it was a really difficult um, purchase, we're probably not going to do that again. I think it goes the same way. So like ease still sits in their mouth when we think about retention. And so like mm. it's not just about acquiring a donor, it's also ways into retention as well. And so I think that's why we can't like really undervalue thinking yeah. How can we simplify it? Because it's it's really going to affect that whole opportunity with a with a person. Yeah. No, that's great. Um, so maybe maybe one last question before before we close. It's kind of like a bit of an elephant in the room, but you know, Facebook fundraisers has been around and raising tons and tons of money. And at one level, you know, we're talking about ease of giving and making it dead easy, and like there's a huge element of that. But the flip side, we're talking about follow up and impact, and you know how crucial that is, and that's you know really really difficult. So this is probably like oh, it's whole podcast on its <laughs> own. But you know, uh, you know, did did what do you what do you think about Facebook fundraisers, or did that come up in survey results, or kind of you know, I'm sure you get asked all the time, like, well, why don't we just use Facebook fundraiser? So um, you know, we we did have to, we have to ask questions about Facebook and how Facebook's being used, especially in our social fundraiser study, because we know that's where a lot of people are starting to fundraise. And, you know, as a whole, I think having Facebook be a part of plan to be, be a part of fundraising is a really um, great thing for the nonprofit sector. You know, getting people excited about fundraising, making it easier for people to fundraise is all very positive. Um, I think what our study did show is those that were solely using Facebook um, to solicit donations, they, they ran into more challenges. They were more likely to say it was difficult to ask for money because I think you're just they're plus prepared with resources, right? When we think about it, it's really, really easy to set up. But when we talk about some of the things that help people be successful, when we talk about your experience with Movember, right, right. how do we how do we create all those engagement points? How do we layer mm-hmm. in matching gift campaigns? 
um, you know, successful templates and all that stuff to make it really engaging to be a fundraiser. It's not really there with Facebook where we do know it's really easy to get up there. And I know Rich, Rich and I don't do a webinar where we're talking about peer-to-peer fundraising or so much <laughs> Facebook fundraising. Um, right. And, and and he's definitely had to answer quite a few questions. I saw him take this one. Yeah, mm-hmm. for, for me, it's, it's always been a love and hate might be too strong of a word, but it's a love slash frustration relationship with Facebook. <laughs> you know what I mean, um, I think, you know, you love to get free money just dropped on your doorstep, right? Which is a lot of what Facebook fundraisers are. The nonprofit just gets money and they're like, oh, great. Um, most people said, don't share my contact information. I don't know who they are. I can't really follow up. Mm-hmm. But hey, it's free money. I'm not going to say no to it. Um, but I think we need to shift our thinking for sh- from short term to long term thinking. So short term, mm. Facebook money is great. It's coming in. But how many how many potential long term donors did I lose who feel like they've now done something great for me? I don't know who they are. I have no way to follow up with them. And I may not ever be able to engage them again. Next month, they might do a Facebook fundraiser for someone else. And the month after yeah. that, someone else. If I can get them back on my platform where I can get to know them, I can build that relationship. I can show them impact. I can turn them into a monthly donor. I can turn them into maybe a major donor. I can even eventually get into a will, a bequest, you know, type type thing. You know, we can see that that lifetime value of the donor is so much easier to realize when I have them than when they're over on on uh, Facebook. And so for me, it's, it's that lifetime value is is what concerns me the most about about Facebook fundraising. Yeah, no, totally. Th- yeah, thanks. I, I just think it's going to be really, really interesting for our space, macro, philanthropy, and then more micro online giving, and then even more so the space that we're talking about, social fundraising, social donors, kind of the role that Facebook uh, has played and will play. So thanks for that. All right. Well, this is great. Thank you so much for, you know, taking time to come on and share about your research. Uh, where can people find out more about you and your work in this research? Yeah, I would say visit our website, onecause.com. Um, we are really, really active in not just sending out a study and, and, and leaving it alone. It's something that we're doing monthly webinars on. We're doing additional content in because there's so much packed into research studies that it's hard. I mean, I, Brady, I know you, you probably read studies all the time. It's like I maybe remember one or two facts, but what we really want to do is, is challenge nonprofits to actually do something with data. Um, maybe mm. it's one thing that you're going to change or maybe it's one tactic you're going to try, but when you're you're consuming all of this data. Um, it, it's really it is making you a smarter fundraiser, but you're going to be a more effective fundraiser when you think about what is one thing or one opportunity from this that I can bring into my organization. And so you'll see a lot of stuff on our website of, of ideas of how to do that. And so um, Rich's whole thing is it's a buffet, right? Pick pick one thing that sounds <laughs> fill your plate as much as you want. Um, but there's a yeah. lot opportunities out there for folks that are looking to improve peer-to-peer fundraising, improve just overall social fundraising. And, and we'd love, you know, for you guys to dive into some of our resources we have online. Cool. Well, we'll be sure to send out the links as well. So uh, thanks again for your research and thanks again for taking the time today. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for having us. It was great. Hi again, this is Brady, and I just wanted to say thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to listen to all future episodes or maybe go back and listen to some of our past episodes, you can do so by going to generosityfreakshow.com, or you can search The Generosity Freak Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, pretty much wherever you listen to your pods. And uh, if you have any questions or a suggested guest, or maybe you yourself would like to come on the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us at podcast at nextafter.com that's podcast at nextafter.com 
And if you want to find out more about this vision to unleash the most generous generation in the history of the world and what we're doing at Next After in terms of research, resources, and training, you can find out more at nextafter.com. That's nextafter.com. Thank you very much for listening. And finally, I have to say thank you to Nathan Hill, our producer and mixologist. This would not be possible without him. So thank you, Nathan. And thank you once again for listening. 